Thanks very much for coming. Lee, can you introduce yourself? Tell us about your academic background, particularly as it relates to mathematics and what you do for work, and mm-hmm. give a brief overview of some of the things you've researched and written about. Yeah, of course. Uh, great to meet you both. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the, the podcast. So I, uh, I started out as a mathematician and physicist, actually, and my original career plan was to, uh, first I was going to be an abstract mathematician and uh, an academic, then I decided that physics was going to be a more useful use of my talents, and of course maths and physics are very closely tied together, as, uh, as you know. But then I, uh, after uh, pursuing that for a little while, I got distracted by the early days of the internet in the back in the mid nineties. And so I went off into technology and software development. But what I realized, although that was a good place to apply mathematical ideas, I realized after a while that you can't develop good software without understanding people very well and understanding how people use software and how they, for example, how they transmit information to each other, how they pass messages between each other. So I uh, decided I had to learn about psychology. And so from there, I got into what's now my current career, which is being a behavioral and cognitive economist. So uh, what I mean by cognitive economist, people, listeners might be familiar with the idea of behavioral economics, but cognitive economics is not just about what we do, but about how we think. So it's building models, mathematical models of how people think, how we uh, place value on the intangible uh, goods inside our head, for example, Uh, our imagination, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, and how that affects our economic behavior. And so I do that not mainly in, well, I spend about half my time doing scientific research. So that's even though I don't work in a university, I'm still in the the academic economics and psychology uh, communities and uh, half my time on more commercial work. So I might work for companies and brands helping them to understand how to how to build those intangible assets in their customers' heads and then how much to charge for that. So on their on their pricing strategy, for example. So that's kind of my my summary. One of some of the interesting recent uh, research that I've been doing is um, in this the idea of uh, mental simulation and how people think about the future outcomes uh, and the hypothetical outcomes that they might have and uh, how, they, how they process those and how that thinking process, that mental simulation actually gives people uh, rewards and pleasure and then building, building mathematical models of how that reward process works, how we learn from that simulation process and how that then feeds into our future behavior and indeed our, our wealth. That's a, a lot to cover. It's fantastic that we could have you on. You wrote a book a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called The Psychology of Price. Just as an introduction to that, what does the price of something represent? And what do people consider when they see the price of something? Mm. So a price has an obvious kind of simple economic um, meaning, which is just how much of something else do you have to give up to get this product? Um, and I think one of the things that people sometimes forget in the, um, is that in economics, money is just a, it, it's just a variable. It's not actually the fundamental thing you're working with. Um, what you're working with is the, the real resources, the, the, the material goods that people have and the experiences they have in life. So a price tells you how much of one experience or one good do I have to give up in order to get something else? So, you know, how much, how much food would I have to sacrifice to get this bottle of wine or how, how much, um, you know, how many cars would I trade in to get this house? But I think price also, because price is 
such a visible thing, it becomes psychologically important to people. So it goes beyond just that economic exchange and it becomes a way that people uh, judge the value of something. And in a sense, the, the way that economists tend to see consumers is as this rational uh, kind of group of, uh, of almost uh, automatons who can make uh, judgments about one good versus another good, uh, one product versus another product, one experience versus another, and decide which one is better and decide like which one, how much is this worth to me based on its intrinsic qualities. The problem is that's a really, really hard decision to make. It's if I look at even something that's relatively as simple as a bottle of wine, there's so many different factors in that, you know, the, the grapes, the, the vintage, the region it comes from, the reputation of the maker, whether it's organic, whether it's got sulfites, whether it's been, um, you know, made in a sustainable way, whether um, it's been transported a long way. And I might, I might have a concern about the carbon footprint of all of these m many, many things. We simplify that decision by looking at the price. It's something that is a lot easier to look at the price of a bottle of wine and say, okay, this is, this is going to cost me £10 or $20. And therefore, I can classify it in, a, in a, uh, a group of wines that is around that price band. I can make assumptions about the quality. I can also make assumptions about the signal that it sends. You know, if I bring a wine to my friend's dinner party that costs uh, £75 versus £7.50, I'm sending a, a different signal. So price becomes a proxy for many of the other factors that we uh, might otherwise take into account. It's a, sometimes I call it an artificial neatener. It's a way of making your decision simple. And sometimes that can lead you into traps um, because it's maybe not as simple as it appears just from the price, but we do tend to use price as a, a way to um, shortcut a lot of this decision-making process about whether it's wine or the house that we're moving into or even the, the job that we're going to take, we'll judge it maybe first by its salary before we think too much about the uh, experience of working in that place. You touched on that you studied psychology and the co cognitive behaviour, co cognitive economics. How do emotions influence how we react to price? One of the biggest emotions about price is this idea of fairness. So we, we often think that there's a fair price for something or indeed an unfair price for something. And um, so this is, uh, in fact, this, this just, just happened last night. I found out that I had been commissioned to do a piece of work for a, a client. They had uh, offered me uh, 4,000 euros for doing it. And I had then I'd recommended a friend of mine to do some work for them as well. And they offered her... 500 euros for the what appears to be the same piece of work now i don't know if there's some misunderstanding there but it seems pretty unfair that when you compare those two numbers that she was offered so much less than me obviously well there is a unfortunately a gender pay gap but it's not that big so there must be something else going on and it seems even though you know perhaps there are totally rational economic reasons it may be that the you know the piece of work isn't exactly the same or the demand uh, side has changed or you know she has different qualifications than me but we intuitively compare these two numbers and we think wait that just that just isn't fair and it could be you know something like there's you know there, there's a cold snap and the snow comes down and then you go down to your local hardware store and you want to buy a shovel to shovel the snow 
and they've put the price up because uh, there's been a, a blizzard. This is, you know, this is seen as price gouging. You see it, or, you know, there could be the bottles of water uh, go up when there's uh, been a, a drought. Yeah. People, people see this as, even though it's driven by fundamental economic factors, it might, it's pure supply and demand that when something's in greater demand, the price goes up. Often consumers see that as unfair and they think, well, I should be treated a certain way. And again, it's because they attach this a meaning to the price of something that goes beyond its pure economic rationale. I can feel for your colleague, the, the female who only got offered 500 for the same piece of work. Uh, yeah. It can be one of the most um, upsetting experiences to know that one of your colleagues is either paid a little bit more for you or than you or a little bit less. Absolutely. Um, there was, there was the a study. Uh, yeah, there was a study where the researchers asked people, would you rather earn $100,000 if everyone else around you is earning 120000 or would you rather earn 80,000 when everyone else around you is earning 60,000? And the majority of people said, I'd rather earn 80 when everyone else is getting 60, because they, even though you're making 20 grand less, at least you're, you're not having to show up every day and think, oh, you're all making more than me. Yeah, it's, it's really about your relation to other people as well, like how, how you stand in the hierarchy of, of civilization. What are some of the basic pricing tactics that companies use on an unsuspecting public? And how can someone protect themselves against these? Mm. So I'll come back to the idea of protecting yourself because I, I, I have a caveat on that. I don't necessarily think that this whole thing is, a, you know, it's not necessarily people trying to get one over on each other. But some of the, the typical things are um, the Goldilocks effect is one that we'll all recognize. And this is the idea that we prefer to buy something that's in the middle. So uh, Goldilocks, the three bears, we all know the, the story, the porridge was, the first porridge was too hot and the next one was too cold and then the one in the middle was just right. And you'll see this in uh, lots of things. If you go and buy software online, usually there's going to be like a, a basic uh, standard and a premium or a, a bronze, silver and gold package. And quite often the one in the middle, the silver one will be highlighted. And this is our you know most popular option they'll see. So putting something in the middle is quite a, a good way to guide people. Again, it's because these decisions are complicated. If I see a software package online, I don't know uh, intuitively which version is best. There's lots of different features. Uh, there's different pros and cons. But if you can simplify it for me by saying, here's the one that's in the middle, um, probably it's, you know, it's not too cheap and basic. It's not too fancy and expensive. Uh, there's a good chance that that's the, the one that I will want. Another thing that you'll often see in conjunction with that is this idea of social proof. So our most popular option, people will uh, will highlight this is the, the one that most people buy. This is the amount of money that most people spend. Anchoring is a good one. You'll see this a lot in, for example, if you're donating to charity, you might see on the website, uh, would you like to donate $100 or $50 or $25? They're giving you these uh, and, and then there's a, you can fill in the amounts that you, that you want. But if I didn't have those prompts, I might fill in, oh, I'll give five. But when I see there's 150, well, five suddenly seems really mean. It doesn't seem enough. So I'm more likely to, to give more. And you, you often see this with sales. You know, this, this shirt was $80, is now uh, 50. And uh, the fact that it used to be $80, or at least is portrayed as having been $80 makes you think, oh, I'm getting a good deal at 50. So again, you have a bit of that emotional payoff 
from feeling that you've got something, uh, you've got a good deal, as well as the actual shirt itself that you get. Okay. Also, in your book, you write about thinking fast, thinking slow, and a third type of thinking. Could you explain what this is? Yeah, absolutely. So I should clarify the book about thinking fast and thinking slow wasn't me that's uh, that's someone else but yeah so you're, you're right I, I cover these these things in in the book and in some of my more recent writings so the listeners might have heard of this idea of system one and system two uh, it was popularized by Daniel Kahneman though it's, uh, other people have written about uh, these dual process models in the past and system one is the, the intuitive the reactive mind it's our our automatic mind uh, and the the classic example is you touch a hot stove and you jump back your body and your the basic parts of your brain tell you to do something before you even realized what you're doing and the same thing is if you you're driving to work and you go on to autopilot and you kind of get there and you think hey I've, i don't remember the journey here it was i was able to do it completely automatically system two is the deliberative part of the mind so that's the the part of the mind that where we can do our calculations we can work out our compound interest and say this is the financial return I will expect from option A or option B. You're supposed to take away the emotion and calculate the rational benefits. But what I realized in uh, my research and in uh, looking at some of the neuroscience research over the last 10 years, as well as looking at the psychology of how people make choices, there is a third way of thinking. Um, and that is that we use our imagination to envisage and feel the outcome of a choice before we make it. So for instance, if I'm uh, buying a house, I will probably project myself into that house and think, what would it be like to live here? I, I will imagine myself in the living room, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in the garden, and I will pre-experience the living in that house and I will feel the emotions that I'm going to feel. Uh, and then I, and I'll judge, are those good or bad emotions? Is this giving me an enjoyable feeling? And this is used even though, you know, we're not all buying houses all the time, but it's used if you see something in the supermarket and you uh, are deciding, is this going to taste nice or not? It's used in uh, often if we're planning our, our actions for the next day. And so I, and I call this system three. So I think that it's an important enough and distinct enough form of thinking and form of decision making. Uh, to be classified separately from system one and two. Um, and uh, there, there seems to be uh, neuroscience evidence to back this up, that it, it does seem to, this mental simulation process operates differently uh, in the brain than uh, system one and system two. What you said reminds me actually of what Tom Watts, the clinical psychologist mentioned in episode two, where he talked about episodic future thinking. Mm. And anyone's interested, there's a publication about it by... Hollis Hansen, O'Donnell, Seedman, Brand, and Epstein in 2019 called Improvements in Episodic Future Thinking Methodology, Establishing a Standardized Episodic Thinking Control. Have you heard of this concept or are they distinct? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know this specific paper, although it sounds, it sounds interesting. I will look it up. But yes, episodic thinking is, there's an idea of episodic memory, which is about replaying uh, memories from the past, but in a way that is sequential and where we remember events in order and, and place them in order. And so episodic future thinking is trans taking that retrospective process and making it a prospective process of translating it into the future. And uh, yes, absolutely. So one of, the, one of the key discoveries in this area is the idea that we use the same brain 
capabilities for a few of these functions. Past replay of past memories versus imagining future experiences, uh, also imagining hypothetical experiences, and even um, empathy, so thinking about other people's experiences. We use the same uh, brain hardware and the same mental processes for all of those things. Um, they're all about simulating some event that's not happening to me right now, and but playing over what it would feel like if it were happening to me right now. It could be past, future, or an experience that someone else is having. I often use that when applying for jobs as well. I think about what the job will actually be like, particularly, as you said earlier, you, you immediately go to how much the, the work is going to actually going to pay. That's the first point. And then you start, particularly if the pay is quite attractive, you start fantasizing how good the, the work will be as well. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I wouldn't claim that this is the, you know, it's not something that, um, a new way of thinking is something we do, we all do all the time. Um, and uh, it's just a matter of, I think, understanding it a bit better by realizing that it has very different characteristics from pure automatic thinking of system one and the calculations of system two. I want to turn to a topic called hyperbolic discounting. It's less painful to pay larger amounts for something in the future than lower amounts for it now. And it made me start thinking about a concept in investing called dollar cost averaging, where traditionally that's used as a way to minimize risk of putting all your money into the market when the, and the next day the market goes down. So rather than doing that, you basically put small amounts in it over a regular period of time. Is that similar in any way to hyperbolic discounting? The place where I see a similarity is that it allows you to commit to a future action. So it's much easier for me to say, I'm going to uh, automatically debit $1,000 a month from my account uh, in the future than it is to say, I'm going to take that $12,000 and uh, pay it out right now. Money that is my future money always feels kind of less expensive or less painful than money that I have right now. There's lots of studies that bear this out that if you have to take cash out of your pocket and pay for something, it's more uh, painful and more difficult than using even using a debit card and certainly using a credit card where the payment actually uh, happens, you know, next month, if ever. So there is something, there is something in common. I think the, the technique of dollar cost averaging does go beyond just hyperbolic discounting because it is about averaging out uh, some of that volatility that can be in, in assets. But I think the hyperbolic discounting, in fact, is really important in even the idea of investing. Because when we invest, what we're doing is we're giving up something that we could have right now for the hope of something that we might have in the future. And that's actually a, quite an unnatural thing for an organism to do. If you think about the animals that we evolved from, be, it would be quite unusual for a animal, you know, let's say a, a bird has got a, a worm sitting there that it's uh, about to eat and it thinks, you know what, I'm going to not eat this worm. I will uh, leave it because it will be there in the future or I'll, I'll put it away somewhere and come back and eat it in, in two weeks when I might not have a worm and it'll be, you know, I'll be hungry. It's, it's a, it occasionally happens with animals. You have squirrels famously store their, their acorns, but it's not too, it doesn't come very naturally. And actually what we're expecting of people in doing that is in a way, almost a kind of form of time travel. You're expecting my future self that in 30 years time, when I've retired, I'm going to get the benefit of the savings that I'm making today. 
but my 30 year future self can't kind of come back and make me do that. He doesn't exist yet. You know, he's, he, he won't exist for 30 years. So I'm, uh, I'm giving up some reward that I, that I could have now. I could just go out and spend the money and, uh, you know, eat the donut and whatever it is that I, I, I want to do right now. And I'm somehow this fictional future self is meant to be the reward that he gets is meant to outweigh the reward that I get right now. And this is where, in a way, this is where the imagination comes back in because what you need to be able to do in order to motivate that is you need to give yourself an immediate emotional payoff from making that saving because the, the material payoff is not going to come for a long time. But the trade for me today, my present self, is I'm giving up consumption, I'm giving up something I could spend the money on right now. And in return, I have to gain an, an emotion right now. And that emotion is perhaps the feeling of safety, comfort, the feeling that I'm taking care of my, my family, or even the feeling of smugness that, oh, I did the right thing I've got. And, or maybe it's about targets in your investment account. It's like, okay, I'm going to get to 100,000. I'm going to get to 500,000. And when I get past that boundary, I'm going to have this motivation as emotional payoff so it's about translating a future material payoff into a present emotional payoff and i would say that actually goes back to the the system three idea because our imagination gives us those immediate emotional payoffs and you you also have to be in an environment that allows you the luxury to think that you're going to live another 30 years or 10 years into the future and, and be in a society that's somewhat stable has reasonable health care so that, that's a bit of a luxury as well that we have in modern times than compared to possibly 100 years ago or, or further back in time. They, they Definitely, yeah. And, and indeed, across different societies today, then different people have, have different degrees of that, of that privilege to, to have access to the, the stability and the predictability. You, you probably heard of the marshmallow experiments, which is when they were given a marshmallow, and they were told, you can have this now, or if you wait, if you wait 10 minutes and you don't eat it, then we'll give you two marshmallows. And supposedly there was, a, you know, some kids took it and others were able to wait and have the second marshmallow. And supposedly they followed up these kids 30 years later. They found that the ones who waited had more economic success. They had better jobs. They had, you know, maybe invested in their education and so on uh, and had better life outcomes. But one of the big questions there is that there's a, there's a trust aspect there's a, a trust in trust in the researcher do I believe that this person who's made me a promise is actually going to fulfill it and trust in the you know stability of of life outcomes and uh, it, yeah if I'm a person who is living hand to mouth and who can't predict what the next week is going to bring then it will be a lot harder for me to say you know what I'm going to not spend this money that I might need to to eat this week uh, because I think it'll pay off at 7% per year, 30 years down the line. And so, yeah. 108 in our case. <laughs> yeah. All right. I had a quick look on Amazon and it's for sale at the moment for £5.38p. What pricing tactics have you used to sell more of the book? This has been an ongoing disappointment for me that the, the publisher has given me no involvement in the pricing of my own book. I asked them right up front, so what, how are we going to, what strategy are we going to follow for this? And they said, well, oh, we, we've got a, 
all the all the books in that range are all priced in a certain way and that's you know we take care of that no you don't have any input <laughs> what's interesting is it's just moved actually the one publisher my original publisher sold their their imprint to a bigger publisher and so the new one the new people seem to have a slightly different strategy so they are discounting it a bit more they might be promoting it a bit more heavily we'll see if it's going to going to lead to, to riches but it's been I mean it's been okay income wise to be honest that book is more about establishing my reputation and being able to show to clients that I know what I'm talking about than a money spinner. So just to wrap up this section, we've covered a few different ideas. How can we bring these concepts to stock market investing or any type of investing, actually, especially given that there's so many companies that someone could invest in, uh, so much uncertainty in the future as well with how those companies will perform. Can we sum up some of these concepts and develop a framework for better investing choices? I think the biggest single framework is the one that you know you you will know and, and many of your listeners will know which is is keep it simple you know passive investing keep the fees low the many of these techniques and effects and phenomena can be traps for us before we talked about defending yourself against these pricing techniques by companies and i would say it's not if you're going and buying a bottle of wine you don't necessarily need to see the pricing of the wine as a trick because it's actually a, a useful signal to you. It can make your decision easier. It can give you a useful guidance. Uh, so in the consumer world, these kind of techniques, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. It's not necessarily a company trying to fool you. But when it comes to investment, in some respects, investment is a zero-sum game. Because if somebody sells you a stock and you buy it, well, one person's sold, another person's bought. If, if the price of the stock turned out to be too high, then they've gained and you've lost. So there are more traps. It's a bit more of a red and tooth and claw uh, environment in investing. And so I don't have a personal framework for investment, except that I, in my own investments, I have everything in passive funds. I go for the lowest fees available. I try to diversify to the extent I can by investing in equities from different world markets. There are companies that help with this. And one of uh, a friend of mine is the head of behavioral finance at Betterment. It's one that's Betterment itself, I think, is only available in the US, but there are similar companies. What they do is they take your money and essentially the goal is they protect you from your own psychological self-sabotage. So they'll take your money, they they will recommend that you don't look at the price of the stocks or look they don't you don't look at your portfolio value every day as we can often be tempted to do to go in and see you know has it gone up today has it gone down today because that can lead you and trap you into over trading and buying and selling too much and every time you trade you lose a small margin on on the thing that you've that you've bought or sold they have a low fee structure because they're investing passively they're not trying to pick stocks so that's an example of a company that will give you a framework that can often help you to avoid those psychological traps in your own behavior. Do they lock you into that purchase for a certain time frame, for example? Like if you, 10 years, for example, if you're a long-term investor, mm -hmm. maybe that isn't long-term for some people, but do they have a mechanism where um, you can't access it? That's an interesting one. I, I don't believe that they do, because I think some of those mechanisms do have a bad reputation in the finance world where people might lock you in for reasons that are not in your own interest. So it's in their case, I think it's more about encouraging you, like giving you the right psychological guidance so that you're not tempted to cash it in too early. Uh, but I don't think they would 
physically limit you from doing so. But for some people, that might be the right thing. And that, you know, we do this with our pensions and our 401ks and our yeah. superannuation. You are putting money in that is structured so that you can't easily get at it for many years and or at least without a tax penalty. So that's a way of kind of forced or, or a strongly encouraged saving so th those those kind of assets are in a way locked up thanks for the brief tour of your book the psychology of price lee i thought we'd move on to the topic of compounding and first of all it's good if we just tell listeners a bit about how we came across each other so we found you through the fintwit community after tweeting about wanting to interview a mathematician and you were gracious enough to respond so I think it's worth calling out for listeners how useful Twitter can be uh, for finance questions and, and how nice people are. For example, someone like you responding to, to strangers like us and look what's happened. Yeah, it's, uh, no, it's been nice to, to have the chance to come on. It's, uh, I, I agree, Twitter is, although there are negative aspects to it and uh, it can be a, a great time sink, it's also a great place for community. And if you find the right communities and the right topics and have the, the right attitude, then it's you can have very constructive conversations with lots of people. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully we're having one now. <laughs> so, so the reason we actually went looking for a mathematician was the interview I conducted with Ben in the first episode where he talked about compounding and how over three generations, it can be used to generate a billion dollars. So this is a huge number. And in, in response to that, I jokingly said, we need to go looking for a mathematician to review Ben's work. <laughs> so just as a, a quick question, because I know a lot of people must be curious about world of mathematics and, and what mathematicians are like. So is there, since finance is all about numbers and, and mathematicians are, are all about numbers, how do you and your mathematics friends talk about finance? Or, or is there even much discussion? Is there like a secret world of mathematician finance that you can give us insight into? Um, I, um, well, a, a little bit. I, um, I, well, first, first one, one thing that you will find if you speak to mathematicians is they don't think they, they talk about numbers. They think, oh, that's accountants talk about numbers. We talk about uh, abstract objects and formulae and theorems. And so the, even though, yes, there, of course, there are numbers underlying it. Um, we, uh, yeah, mathematicians have this uh, a very much more theoretical view on things. And so the idea of compounding in mathematics is the exponential function. And so the, the exponential function, uh, you, you people will have heard of exponential growth, for example, is a really important function in maths. And as you know, there's, there's huge amounts of, of theory that's built on that. But yeah, we talk about it in different ways, but essentially, I guess what you what you mean is uh, what we're talking about is compounding. The, I mean, there is a mathematical finance world. It's, uh, you know, as much with people on Wall Street making quantitative models that they use for trading as as among mathematicians themselves. I think like, like many academics, mathematicians can be a little bit uh, distracted from real world concerns and uh, probably uh, most of them are, are lucky that their universities are taking care of their pension investments for them and uh, not leaving it to the the individual professor that's interesting to know and I, i'm glad you you mentioned uh, about how some i guess at least there's a stereotype and it's the same for all academics really that perhaps they don't spend enough time thinking about the real world and that's that's another meaningful aspect of this interview to me because it's actually the first time i've, I've really talked with a mathematician and had a mathematician comment on something that is meaningful in everyday life for everyday people which is 
their personal finances and, and what happens, uh, at least in their retirement, in terms of their investing outcomes. So it's, yeah, it's nice yeah. to have you, you on. I think one of the, in a way, one of the places that mathematics shows up in real world applications is economics, because most economists actually are quite mathematically literate. They're, they're not as theoretical um, as someone who's a pure mathematician necessarily, but economics is in a way the application of mathematics to real world financial decision making. So that's kind of the, the world of economics might be the best overlap between the two. Okay, great. Okay, so in response, I guess, to my first question, you basically said that when mathematicians think about finance, they think about compounding. So it's interesting to see the, the overlap, I guess, in the finance world, we're all about uh, compounding as well. Mm -hmm. So just to, to focus on that a bit more, are there any significant theories or discoveries uh, where compounding is involved in mm -hmm. uh, mathematics? So I think, well, as I said, it's, it, you know, we think of it as the exponential function and the exponential function shows up all over mathematics. So. Uh, classic uh, places that it shows up is in you know things like models of population growth or models of how well right now we see in the pandemic models of how the virus spreads through the population are very much based on exponential growth there is the r number that is talked about in uh, in the covid pandemic is in fact effectively like a compound interest rate if the r number is 1.1 that means that it's exactly the same as having a 10% interest rate. It's, it's one plus 10% and you, you work out the spread of the disease just as you would work out the return on an asset by saying, I take that 1.1 to the power of the number of generations of uh, the virus or the number of years of my investment. So mathematics in a way is about finding these common patterns between many things and that whether it's to do with the, the nuclear reactions in a star the spread of the virus or the growth of your assets that exponential function governs it all ah, great it's good to know that it has significant explanatory power in understanding how the world works and how mathematicians go about rendering those explanations so you've mentioned a couple of examples in nature and a contemporary one COVID-19 have you got any other examples of the exponential function or compounding in nature? So one example would be the idea of a chain reaction. The, the idea that you uh, start with one atom that splits, it maybe fires off a, an alpha particle, that's absorbed by another atom, which splits again, and that fires off two alpha particles. And effectively, these you build up a chain reaction, which very quickly becomes a nuclear, well, a, either a, a sustained controlled nuclear reaction in a power station or an uncontrolled explosive one in a nuclear weapon. So that would be one example. And another one would be a, an embryo in the womb. So when a new cell is formed, when a, a, an egg and sperm cell come together, they create a zygote that splits in two, those split in two, those split in two. And so those cells become quickly two, four, eight, 16, and you have a very fast exponential growth of an organism. And you'll see that in whether it's in bacteria, whether it's in human beings. So the, any, anything where the, the outcome of one interaction determines the starting point for the next interaction is fertile ground, so to speak, for the exponential function. Yeah, th th this is exactly what I was hoping would be the outcome of, of these uh, questions. Because I, my simple understanding of compounding is, and as you've just illustrated, it's the basis for some of the most powerful things that we observe in nature. You named an atom bomb or nuclear power. 
you named the growth of an embryo. This is also incredibly meaningful in people's lives. And you also talked about pretty much the, the worst problem humanity faces at the moment. COVID-19. So basically, yeah, what, why I wanted to bring this up is, and it's nice to have the backup of a mathematician, is that it is one of the most powerful forces in nature. And therefore, it will be useful for investors to have compounding working in a positive way in their financial plans. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I thought I'd also mention is uh, the idea of ergoticity and non-ergoticity. So this might be something that's less familiar to listeners. But there is a growing body of work. Ergodicity is a concept that actually came from physics, was borrowed into mathematics, and has started to be applied in finance now. So ergodicity is, the, is the, the idea or the question of when you average out the returns let's across a volatile set of instruments or set of events, how do you do that average? So one way of thinking about it is that you can see what's if, if a million people made this same decision at the same time, what would the average result be that they would get? So that's called the population or the ensemble average. That's the average across lots of people. But the other way you could think about it is if I made this decision a series of times in succession, what average result would I get? And the difference is that the population average, every decision is independent. But for my personal average, each decision depends on the one that came before. And so if you have a volatile return, if you have an unpredictable return on an asset, for instance, so that could be, it's one thing if you, your money's in the bank or a government bond and you've got a guaranteed rate of interest. But if you put your money into the stock market, it's, uh, it's not guaranteed. You might have an average return of typically 7% is what's seen as the long-term average, but it's going to vary. It's going to vary from one stock to another, from one market to another, and particularly from one year to another. And so the idea is that uh, if you can average over time and you get a consistent, stable return in the same way as you could average across a million people, then this is an ergodic function. But if it's not ergodic, and unfortunately finance turns out not to be very ergodic, then by averaging over time, you create a lot more volatility. So what that means is I might get an average return of 7% a year in the stock market. But in reality, I will get one year, I might get 27%. So I've got 20% higher than the long-term average. Another time I might get minus 13. So I might have 20% lower than the long-term average. And in reality, year after year, I'm going to get, it's going to go up and down. It's not going to be consistently 7%. What that means is that if I start with my $1,000, yes, it might go up to um, $1,270 if I, get, if I have a good year, but it might go down to $870 if I have a bad year. And the next year's starting point is last year's endpoint. So that volatility feeds into the next year's returns. And what this means is if you, if you have a volatile, unpredictable return when you compound it, then it becomes even more volatile. And so rather than having something that consistently averages out to a steady stream of income over 100 years, you end up with a potentially um, a very inconsistent set of returns between different people. So, for example, this year I might get a return of 7%, but then next year I might get a return of you negative know, 1%. Is what you're saying that, for example, Ben, this year, where I got 7%, Ben might get you know, 8% and next year where I got negative 2%, Ben might get positive 10%. Are you saying that's how it works? The volatility in different for each individual? 
Well, it can be if you're invested in different things. And if that happens, then you're going to get very different outcomes. So what might happen is that in 100 years, rather than you and Ben both having your billion dollars that you were expecting from uh, episode one, you yeah, might find ben, you promised me. <laughs> you might find that um, you end up with uh, $3 billion, uh, but Ben ends up with, uh, with $100,000. And um, the, what you'll find is that the, the average across a bunch of people might, may still be a billion. Um, but there's quite likely to be a small number of people who end up with multiple billions and a large number of people who end up with, with a lot less. So the um, mode will be different from the mean. Yes. Sorry, not the mode. Pardon me, the median. Maybe even the uh, Well, the yes, the, me the, the mean will be different. The, yeah, the median will be very different from the, the mean. The mode, the, the mode would no doubt be different as well. But yes, the, the median will be a lot lower than the mean. You'll end up with, um, essentially, with a, quite an unequal situation um, where many people end up with, with less and a few people end up making spectacular returns. Now, this is why it's important to, to manage the volatility of your returns so that you're not, uh, not putting it all in one stock because that makes it much more volatile. Uh, you can spread it out across, say, let's say the Australian stock market or the S&P 500 in the US, and that will, that will help to reduce the volatility, but ideally you'll spread it even more widely and put it into to different markets. Because if you, if you have that consistent return and you can eliminate the volatility, then you do have that predictable, you know, potentially billion dollar return, um, subject to taxes, no doubt. But um, the, uh, it's the volatility when it's compound, when the volatility itself is compounded, as well as the return being compounded, that's when you lead uh, to these very unpredictable and potentially unequal results. Thanks for mentioning that the volatility compounds because I was, I was gonna ask that. Um, yeah, th this is a new concept for me. Um, I'm glad you uh, brought it up for listeners. So what I'm gonna put in the show notes is a link again to the spreadsheet that Ben put together in episode one Lee, you've added in column K and L some extra figures. Could you just briefly remark on what's going on there? Yeah, so what I've added there is alongside the, the column showing that consistent return is I've added a column that shows a more volatile return. So every row on column K and L uh, essentially flips a coin. And if the coin comes up heads, then you make a, the market is up and you make a good return that year. If the coin comes up tails, then the market's bad and you make a negative return. On average, it still comes out to the same 7.15%, uh, which you can, you can tweak in the spreadsheet. But because of that volatility, you'll see that the results become really wildly unpredictable. And every time you load the spreadsheet, it will regenerate a new set of results. Or every time you edit a cell on the spreadsheet, it will recalculate. And when you look down at the bottom of that column, you'll see that the total return could be anywhere from $3 billion at the, up, the high end down to say $20 million at the low end. Now, 20 million might still sound to be a decent amount of money, but it's very different than the billion dollars that you were thinking was going to set up your family for multiple generations. So when you play with that, you'll see that the volatility is magnified by the compounding. Okay, I think we'll leave that topic, but this is exactly why we got a mathematician on, and thanks for adding that extra insight. I'm frustrated, frankly, about how compounding often works in the average person's financial life. 
So I'd like some comment from you, Lee, with your mathematician's cap on about why people frequently have negative financial compounding as a feature in their lives, such as credit card debt and mortgage debt, but not positive compounding, such as through investing, even merely regular index fund contributions. There's a strange, I guess, cognitive economic phenomena here. And it's disappointing given the incredible impact that positive compounding can have on people's lives that so frequently actually compounding is working negatively. Yeah. I mean, I would say to, to put a, a non-mathematical head on for a moment, of course, that it's not as simple as just saying, well, people should have positive compounding and that's a better decision to have money than to have debt. That perhaps kind of obvious is there's a lot of personal circumstance involved. And of course, there are people who, who don't necessarily have the opportunity to save very much. So let's at least let's keep that in mind. It's not just about people making bad choices. It's also about the, uh, the situations. I, I guess but, what I was getting at, if you, if you don't mind me, me mm. butting in there, is maybe I wasn't clear enough in, in asking the question, but may, maybe it's more of a psychological than a, a mathematics question, which is how you were maybe going in your response. I, I almost feel like somehow people are enticed. And mm. my, my dismay is that we have a society which we call modern and advanced, but still the average outcome seems to be somehow people are tempted by credit cards and the, mm. the nice handbags or the nice Nike shoes they can buy. And it dismays me that our modern society that we're all proud of has this as almost a default outcome. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like we need to balance what we want to save for the future because particularly because as we get older, we are often less able to earn. So it's important to, to protect ourselves. But I think we need, to, we can live in the present a little bit as well. But as long as, as long as you keep those in balance, one of the things, one of the phenomena you do see that is indubitably a mistake is that people actually have negative and positive compounding at the same time. So you'll see people who have a savings account where they're earning 4%, they're lucky. There are some investments and they're maybe making seven or 10% a year on the investments, but at the same time, they have credit card debt and they're paying 20% interest on $10,000 of credit card debt. Now, what you should really do in that situation is you should pull some of your investment out and pay off the credit card debt. You shouldn't be carrying negative and positive assets at the same time because the negative ones are always going to be more expensive and they're going to cancel out much more of the returns that you get. So effectively, the if you've got 50000 in your investment account, your 10,000 of credit card debt is making all of that completely useless. So if you do take 10 of the investments, sell it, pay the credit card off, you'll be much better off. So that's definitely a, a psychological trap that people get into. And, it, you know, there's, there's theories like mental accounting, which tell us that people like to keep their money in separate kind of mental pots. So they like to have their, their savings because they feel it's important to, that they've made a commitment to their savings and they don't want to get rid of that just to pay off their debts. I understand that, but it's uh, in the long term, that's the kind of thing you should really be doing. In terms of kind of temptation to buy consumer goods, I, I do feel like we, we do need some joy in life and that uh, it's okay that some of the joy is from, is from buying nice things. But you're quite right. Of course, everyone has to keep it in perspective and buy what they can afford to the extent that they can avoid it, not, not be tempted by 
social pressure to basically overweight the present self at the expense of the future self. You need to be able to keep both of those two selves in mind and uh, balance out their interests to the extent that you can. There's work in developing countries on sometimes the difficulty of being able to, to save and the fact that it's people face psychologically difficult conditions that make it hard to put aside even small amounts of money to save. And so that's probably a different issue. But in the richer societies that you and I live in, then, of course, we do want to keep these things in balance. Okay, I think you've begun to answer our next question. But just in case you have anything else to add, if I hired you as a mathematician to design a school curriculum for personal finance and investing, how would you teach the idea of compounding in order to inspire students to use it to benefit them as early in life, key uh, item there, uh, as possible? I think I, I think I remember how I learned about compounding as a kid. And I think the, the book that I read was about rabbits. And it used the idea that you have a pair of rabbits. Very quickly, you're going to have more than a pair of rabbits. The rabbits are going to, to breed. They're going to compound, so to speak. And you will have more rabbits. And then they will breed with each other. And you will have more and more rabbits. So I, I think... It, that's a that's an idea that is very intuitive i think for kids to the idea that you can see your the, the two cute rabbits that you had are going to quickly become 16 or 32 or 512 rabbits for for a lot of kids that would be quite a, an amazing idea to have 512 rabbits so this is this possibly a way that you can sell the emotional benefits of investing to kids another story that's told which i think maybe comes from the the thousand and one nights originally is the idea of the uh, emperor with the chessboard. So this was supposedly the king who commissioned his advisor to invent a, a board game, something to keep him entertained. And the advisor came back and said, I've invented this game called chess. And uh, the king loved it and said, okay, what would you like for as your reward? And the advisor says, nothing much. I just like one grain of rice on the first square of the board and then two on the next square and then four for the next square and then uh, and so on for every square of the board and the king said well of course that's really all you want is like a bowl of rice and the advisor said well that's that's the amount of rice I'd like please uh, please pay up and uh, of course the king discovered that this is more rice than could be produced in the entire world the story either ends with the king being bankrupted and the advisor becoming the, the richest person in the, in the kingdom or the advisor being executed for arrogance and, and insolence. All right. So I can't, I can't help myself, Lee. I'm going to put you on the spot here. So knowing all of these things and given your, your interest, I, I guess, from an early age in mathematics, when did you begin your compounding career? When did you start to put these ideas to work? Well, I, I was always very entrepreneurial and I started out without really a, a nest egg uh, to build on. So I started with negative compounding, in fact, because I, when I started my company, I had to borrow money. Uh, you know, I was, I was careful about it. I, I had an eye on the interest rate and so on, but I started with, well, that it, maybe maybe starting a business is one of the examples where it's actually okay to have negative and positive compounding because you've borrowed at a fixed rate, an affordable rate from a bank, and you want to invest that in your business to build a return in your future assets. So I eventually built up a, a business that was worth something. So then actually a, f a few years ago, I uh, sold my shares in, in one of my businesses and was able to take that money and invest that. So that's where, at that point, I started to look seriously into all of these uh, concepts that are, you know, the best practice, passive investing, low fee index funds, 
and so on. And so that's where uh, it was probably about five or six years ago that I started that yeah. I was able to actually start to, to seriously invest a decent sized asset. Again, this is not to buttonhole you or to point the finger. I'm just curious. Warren Buffett, for example, as far as I'm aware, or the, the myth at least says he started when he was 10. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the advantage that's conferred from starting as early as possible. And it sounds as though you may have started that business, at least, I guess, when you finished in your early yeah. 20s. Yes, I went to university early. So I graduated university at 18 and then I started the business the next year at 19. So yeah, that's okay, right. when I started. So yeah, it's, although I, I didn't have financial assets to invest. And so for many years, I didn't have a, a pension fund. I didn't have any significant savings, but I was putting my time into building that business. And that's mm. what, um, it was a risk. It could have easily, yeah. could have easily failed, but um, in the end, at least, at least one of them did pay off. And so it was worth it. Okay. And just to fully expose, I guess, the utility of having you particularly as a guest for listeners, if you finished uni when you were 18, you started early, very early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started at 14. I kind of, I had a bit of a talent for mathematics at, at school. So I went ahead a few years and was able to graduate early and start university. Okay. Well, this, this highlights really the privilege of having you on the podcast. And I think maybe the next uh, couple of questions as we bring things to a close will really highlight, I guess, the contributions that you've been able to make. And I think they'll only increase as people can see through the tool that you've developed, especially in terms of the impact on society. So you gave a TEDx talk about something called Heuristica, mm -hmm. uh, which is a computer simulation of an economy. So in this simulation, you showed how certain biases can impact the economic outcome in minority or non-norm groups, essentially quantifying the impact that these biases have. You also recently used it to estimate COVID-19 impacts. So could you tell us a little bit more about Heuristica and what uh, you're trying to achieve here using your academic, particularly mathematical background? Yeah, absolutely. So Heuristica is the idea, is it, well, as you say, it's a software simulation of, of an economic system. It's, if you imagine something like The Sims or uh, one of these computer games where you have a world inside the computer and you can see people interacting and over time, different things happen to them. This is what Heuristica is. And in the TEDx talk, I specifically set it up to explore the idea of bias in uh, economic outcomes and in pay. And to explore the idea that even a very small, a very tiny, difference at the starting point can end up with substantially different results uh, in the end. So it's, in, in fact, it's, it's another example of compounding. So in, in the example setup of that talk, I created a society. It started in, say, 1960, and that society had a couple of inbuilt inequalities, imbalances. So you had a society where men were more likely to start businesses, for example, or white people were more likely to have more assets uh, than black people. And I ran that simulation forward, I simulated how that economy would develop for 50 years. And even if we could, even if that society moved into a place where uh, nobody was overtly prejudiced, where there was no direct discrimination, those inequalities would still be entrenched. And so you would end up with significant differences in pay between genders or between races. And essentially, the reason for doing that was not just to kind of prove the point, because you can look around at the world and you see that that's the case. It was also to be able to explore social solutions. So we could say, if we tried this policy or that policy, if people behaved in this way or that way, how would that change the outcome? 
And by doing that, I was able to find particular policies that could actually break that cycle and could restore a degree of equality to that world. So that's the power of that tool is it's something called an agent-based model. There's a agent-based modeling is, is a technique that's been emerging in economics recently. And the power of that is with a, an amount of kind of programming and configuration that allows you to uh, model different scenarios, test out different policies. And so, as you say, I, I used it earlier this year to build a model of uh, the COVID pandemic, how that would spread and how it would affect the economy. And uh, so that's something that I've uh, been using in uh, my business with clients to help them understand what the impact is going to be on their business and their production. I remember at the end of your TEDx talk, you mentioned that there are 195 countries in the world. And you said how having a, a country or economy simulator could be a new way to do what these 195 countries are, which is a collection of experiments about how humans can get together and, and work together, uh, possibly, at least in, in terms of some of the countries, to make everyone's lives better. Yes. So, and you said literally that a simulator like this could save lives where some of these experiments fail and they end up, for example, in genocide. But you were just mentioning there how, for example, you could look at the effect of COVID-19. So has your tool actually led to lives being saved? I mean, I think I, my tool, uh, my specific tool, I, as far as I know, has not been used in kind of governmental decision making. But I know that the people building similar models, they have used those tools to guide policy making. And obviously, you know, there's a huge debate worldwide about the right policy in the COVID-19 world and what is the right response and what the trade-offs are. But these type of models have absolutely been used and been used successfully to explore and compare different solutions. And you'll see, well, I guess you're in Australia and they have probably a better outcome there than we do here in the UK. I'm sure that those models have contributed there to, to understanding and predicting how uh, different quarantine policies or different travel policies between provinces and states or different public health policies, different social distancing policies would impact the spread and, how the, and also how they would impact the economy so that those trade-offs can be made. Did you put a number of these different parameters in your tool and come up with, say, 10 different sets of outcomes? Yeah, I, one of the things that I realized in, in designing a tool specifically for COVID-19 is how many parameters there are. It does make the modeling very difficult and it, it makes the challenge for policymakers actually really clear. I had to probably set about between 60 and 80 parameters in order to model how the disease would spread. Everything from the clinical parameters, so how quickly does it spread from one person to another, how likely is someone to be infected when they're exposed to someone else, how long does it last, how long is somebody infectious, to social behavioral parameters like how many people do you meet on a typical day? How many people do you walk past on a typical day? How does that vary between adults and children who are going to school? How does it vary among a population who is some of whom are out in the public space working uh, and some of whom work at home? There were a huge number of variables and changing even a small number of those variables can lead to very different outcomes. So it both, it, it made me very aware of the, the challenge for public health modelers in getting enough data to accurately understand the value of those parameters and also the, the range of policy outcomes that there can be. It did allow me to 
evaluate things like how much difference will a stay-at-home order make? How much difference does compliance make if 70% of people follow the rules versus 90% versus 99%? Where are the thresholds that allow the the policies to work? Mm. Okay. Continuing on with the idea of using the tool to improve people's lives, we've been looking at health outcomes. This podcast is about people's financial outcomes. So I can't help but think it would be amazing to be able to put your tool to work looking at, for example, what would happen in society if people were successful in putting into action the plan that Ben's spreadsheet with your enhancement sets out. What would we do to begin to describe using a simulation that your tool enables a society with a number of people being successful compounding in this way? So I think one of the things that I believe that simulation would show or a question that it would bring to the fore, well, because because one of the one of the really interesting aspects of doing these simulations, it's not just the answers that you get, it's also the questions that it leads you to ask because you start building a simulation and then you realize, oh, wait, here's something I didn't think of. So here's something. There might be a very different pattern of outcomes for one small group of people who save, you know, what was it, $35,000 a year they were had to save to build yeah. up their billion dollars. So imagine one small group of people do that and they can build up their billion dollars. But that might not work if every person in the whole society is saving $35,000. And the reason is this, where are you saving that money? Now, yes, you might save it in the stock market, you're investing, but if you buy that stock, someone else has to sell it to you. Or you might be putting it on deposit in the bank. And then if you're essentially lending money to the bank, the bank's borrowing it from you. The bank has to lend it, well, they have to, but they're likely to lend it out to someone else. In reality, a lot of the investments we make are not pure productive investments. They're actually loans to somebody else. Um, and it, or it could be a loan to the government. Very often it's about, you know, a lot of your pensions are probably invested in uh, government bonds, which is a loan that finances the government. So it might not be possible for everyone to, well, certainly everyone can't lend money to everyone else because it always has to be a borrower for on the other side of a lender. Even if we all want to invest in productive assets. So we, let's say we put our money into the stock market that hopefully is financing capital assets and human capital assets that are being built in those companies. But it's not necessarily clear that everybody could have an asset that, well, everyone could have that level of asset. Another way to think about it is we talk about often passive income and many people who are investing will have the goal of passive income, being able to live off their money, live off the returns of their money and not have to go to work every day. That can't work for everyone because if you want to go and sit on the beach and have a cocktail brought to you, there's got to be someone there who is not living on passive income who brings you a cocktail. Ultimately, maybe maybe we'll all be able to have robots doing that kind of work. And in theory, that's possible eventually. But in the for, certainly for the next few decades, it seems that we can't all be living off passive income. So I think that's one of the, th- the things that this a simulation would make very sharp is the idea of the what's called the fallacy of composition. The fact that one person can successfully do something doesn't mean that everybody can necessarily successfully do the same thing. So I think it'd be interesting to explore that, to see if more people do save and invest, does that mean, one, it probably means society becomes more productive, there'd be more capital assets, maybe it will be that robots do more things for us and that frees up people who currently have to do manual labor that is is, is maybe not as fun, but to some extent it might displace some of that income. So it may be that 
if you look at a country like uh, Switzerland, there's still people who work in the bars and the restaurants, but they get paid a lot more than they do in many other countries. So if you're, if you're in Switzerland, I think you're, you're probably earning 30, 40 euros an hour uh, working in a restaurant, which is four times what you might get in, uh, in London. So maybe you'd be able to explore whether some of those changes come about. You'd be able to explore whether there comes this paradox where at some point not everybody can save and invest at the same time and how that could be resolved. Yeah, I mean, there's a conflict because on the one hand, it would be incredibly good for a family to have a billion dollars. Your kids, the quality of your kids' lives is kind of guaranteed. They will have the best healthcare, the best education. They'll live in the safest neighborhoods. And so, like, I, I recently became a father. I think I can't be blamed for having the motivation to produce the best outcomes for, for my daughter. Of course. But then there's the slightly dismaying uh, prospect that this urge essentially to generate privilege for my daughter could mean that my daughter's quality of life is at the expense of, of others. Uh, is that kind of on, on, on the target here of what you're, you're saying? Well, that's, that's the risk. Now, I don't think that the economy is actually a zero-sum game. Absolutely uh, we, we have seen over the last two, three hundred years that across the lives of most people on the planet, life has got much, much, much better. People are safer almost universally. People are richer. They have, they have better life. So there is absolutely a common good, a common social aspect to this growth. And investing does help to promote that because if if you invest if you build a capital asset that asset has got spillovers it has surpluses that help other people as well so it's not that i i don't think that by investing and saving you are hurting anybody i don't think it comes at the expense of someone else i just feel like we we also ought to bear in mind that it's not possible for everyone to do it to the same extent and there are a few areas in life where there's only so much to go around and the uh, you know the, these are called tournament rewards in economics where some kind of rewards are they can they're positive some they can benefit everybody and other kinds of rewards are uh, limited there is only a limited number and you know a typical example is i don't know who's ranked number one in the world for tennis no matter how much more investment we put into tennis and how many more kids we train to be good tennis players you're not going to create a whole new set of number one in the world ranked tennis players there's only going to be one that's kind of the point so some of these tournament rewards are always going to be competitive and it can you know that that can lead to problems politically it can lead to you know if, if you have for instance a perception that there's only a small group of people in society who have all the influence and and set the agenda then that can lead to conflict but putting that set of concerns aside, there is definitely a, a common economic asset that we all share in, which is having a, a thriving economy with generally shared bonds of trust with a compact that like a social safety net that helps to keep people safe and give people the, the psychological security as well as the material security. And I think that investing as a society and as individuals for the long term definitely contributes to boosting that. I feel like we could go on for hours and, and we have to be concise here for the benefit of listeners. But something that I thought of that's missing also from the sheet that Ben and I have put together is what do we do once we reach the billion dollar goal? Surely there are ways that that money could be spent or invested 
in society that would be to everybody's benefit. So maybe that's in terms of building up a simulation or the parameters also something to consider. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's incredible, the, the topic and, and these concepts, and it would be great to keep going. Just as one final one, you mentioned that yeah. perhaps one thing that distinguishes some countries or simulations about how to, in this great human project of how to create a way of living that is to the benefit of all and generates the best life outcomes. You mentioned that in developing countries, it can be hard simply just to save a bit of money. Mm. So it made me think if this tool could be used to investigate personal finance outcomes and how that could make lives better, maybe you could simulate different degrees of saving and as a way of helping a developing country dig its way out. Yeah, I think you always have to be a bit humble and not assume that you know what the circumstances are like in, in those places, but you could absolutely work with people who, who live there and are from there and get their input into how to design the simulation, for example, to say uh, what are the right kind of institutions or tools that might help people to save. And uh, we see, for example, in some countries, uh, mobile phone-based money, the M-Pesa money in, I think, in Kenya, has become really widespread, is, is used almost by everybody. And this is a, a thing that enables people to save when they don't have access to traditional bank accounts, for example. So that's something that obviously have arisen in the real world, but we could experiment with that in Euristica to see how could that, uh, what circumstances can that be beneficial or when can it work best in other environments? I'm waiting for that simulation. I will let you know as soon as it's ready. We'll wrap up just with two more questions. Last one is, yeah. given that it's an investing podcast, what's a recent investment you've made or decided not to make? And what was the basis for that decision? Right. Okay. I, I've got a, a, an interesting answer for you here. Almost all my money is in passive index funds. So I, the, the whole point there is to not make decisions. I, I just leave it relatively untouched. But I did recently have a look at the betting markets on the US presidential election. Okay. And uh, a few of us on Twitter, as well as being in kind of the FinTwit world, I'm also interested in politics Twitter. And so a few of us have been monitoring uh, what are the odds on uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden winning the election over the last few months. And we're now in a situation where we seem pretty sure that Joe Biden has won, but uh, Donald Trump hasn't yet admitted it, at least at time of recording. And so there is still a, a, there's a very active betting market on the outcome of this election, and that can be seen as an investment. So right now, you can invest, um, for example, $1,000 in Joe Biden winning and uh, on Betfair, and you will get a return of 7% if he does win. And within, well, whenever it's decided, so or whenever Betfair decides that it's certain, which uh, probably within a week or so. So if you think about that 7% return within 10 days, say, now you don't have the opportunity to compound it because there won't be another election coming along for a while. But what that appears to be, and obviously, you know, we could all be wrong. Maybe Donald Trump will somehow fiddle the system and, and, and he will win. So it's not risk-free, but the consensus is that it's pretty low risk. So if you could, what, what essentially is probably happening is there's a lot of true believers in, uh, in Donald Trump who are willing to put their money on the other side of that bet. And if you think, if you look at their psychology and you think, well, they're probably 
deluding themselves. They're probably, it's confirmation bias. They want to believe this is true, so they're allowing themselves to believe that it's true. Then you could say, well, if they want to put the money up, I'm, I'm willing to take it. So I've put in, I've made a, a substantial investment. Not, you know, it's money I can afford to lose. So if I turn out to be wrong, I will eat my humble pie and uh, we'll all have four years more of, of sadness. But if I am right, I'll, I'll make a very good return in two weeks. To wrap us up, tell us once again the name of your book, where people can find it, and if people want to get in touch, how they can do so. Sure. So the book is called The Psychology of Price by uh, Lee Caldwell. And it's uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on um, most uh, most good bookstores, as they say. They it's it's been a couple of years now, so if your your local bookstore may not have it in stock anymore, but they can certainly order it for you. But um, you can also contact me on I'm on Twitter at at Lee Blue. Lee is L E I G H, and then blue the color blue. And I have a blog at knowingandmaking.com which is about cognitive economics. Uh, and uh, my company is Irrational Agency. So you can go to irrationalagency.com and email me from there if you'd like to. Great. We'll put all those in the show notes as well. Thank you. Well, it's been uh, great fun talking to you both. Uh, and uh, I uh, look forward to listening in uh, future episodes. So can I ask you a question before we finish? You can decide whether oh. to include this one or not. So I saw that I saw your podcast a, a little while ago. I think I, I must have been following you before we spoke on Twitter. So I thought, oh, behavioral investor, that's, a, you know, there's a whole range of things to about behavioral finance, about the psychology of investment. And I thought this, this is going to be a really interesting thing. And, and it has been, but I feel like you've got a real bee in your bonnet about compound interest. It's <laughs> like, it's an important aspect of investing, but it's only one dimension of behavioral uh, investing. Um, tell me why that's been such a, a dominant theme of your episode so far? I'll answer. Well, it, it was basically triggered by it being the main sort of mechanism for getting to the billion dollars in, in this sheet that Ben put together. A bit of history of our, our amazing podcast. Like we started in August, so it's been three months now. And I'm wondering how long we're going to keep going. But I feel like this, the point we're at now is, is important because we've essentially covered off the, the problems um, in executing on this plan that we discussed when I interviewed Ben about it, because it's basically unheard of for someone to sit down and compound their way over three generations to a billion dollars. So yeah. in response to that, we got my friend Tom Watts to come on and expound about the challenge using his knowledge as a clinical psych. We got a whole bunch of really useful theories there. And it was interesting to see the overlap between you two. You both talked about episodic future thinking, for example. Mm. And then we had a pilot on and we had a racing coach as two people who have to perform highly. You've got to have your things together if you're flying an A330. Also, yeah. if you're going at three or 400 kilometers an hour at Indianapolis 500 in an IndyCar, You've also got to be a pretty sharp mind. So we picked up those two just through networking. In a way, a part of this, to be successful here with this challenge, you have to be a high-performing individual. Yeah. You also have to be highly disciplined. So I feel like we covered off that part of it with those two guests. And then the final part was the compounding, or at least the mathematics. And you've brought up this new dimension to it, which is the, the compounding of the effect of volatility. And also, I think it's just my frustration, and maybe I've gotten into a loop <laughs> considering myself as, a, as an automaton, I just see 
compounding happening in a bad way in people's mm. lives so much. And I'm frustrated, I guess, that my education and my family, as much as I love them and as much as I respect my teachers, didn't convince me to start compounding and investing my pocket money at age 10, like Warren Buffett. At the risk of sounding obsessive, and I think maybe it's a good thing to obsess about, if anything, the ideas around this that I'd try to expose my daughter to, if you put it this way, is that I would try to send her in the direction of compounding as early as she can, because it's like having the equivalent of a nuclear power station in your personal finances. So. Yep. That's Absolutely. And, and no, I, I, I totally agree. And I've, I've um, started a couple of funds for my nieces and nephews as well, because I think exactly if they get to 60 or 70 and they've had that start and they've had some money accruing for decades and decades, then it's going to be very valuable to them. So I think it's a, it's a great thing to, uh, to do. And it gets you into habit as well as the actual asset itself. That's one brilliant. thing I'd recommend that you look at is uh, somebody did a calculation of Donald Trump's wealth and they figured out that if you started with the amount of money that he had from his dad and just compounded it based on the S&P 500 returns, you end up with more than he has now. So in his entire career as a billionaire, he's destroyed wealth compared to the, uh, the basic compounding equation. Yeah, so, you're, um, <laughs> you're betting against Trump and you're... you're uh... Yeah, well, it's um, it may be my downfall, but uh, it'll be it'll have a dual benefit if it comes off of uh, getting the money and uh, getting a bit of Schadenfreude. Quite a good book that spurned the idea of compounding over you know multiple generations, and it's I've just put it up on the screen. It's called Family Fortunes. Okay, and it's by a guy called Will Bonner. Yep, his brother Will and Bill Bonner. And it talks about essentially developing up a dynasty for yourself, for your family. Mm. Uh, so you're investing over multiple, it goes into more than just compounding. It talks about family dynamics, getting the right constitution, for lack of a better word, within the family and having different roles of people in that family as well. But that was the main idea that it's such an insightful book. You won't love everything about it, but it does give you an interesting perspective on family dynamics, creating your own dynasty and creating mm. massive wealth as well over time. And that's sort of okay. what spurned the, the spreadsheet that we developed. Yeah, yeah sounds, sounds good. Although I haven't had much exposure to those kind of multi-generational families, my partner works with some philanthropists at the moment on coaching them on public speaking. She's a TEDx coach herself. She's working with some of these philanthropists who've had wealth and working with them on their process of giving it away. So they're actually all now, many of them taking some of that money and saying, okay, we actually, we only need so much, like a billion dollars is probably fine for our family. So with the other 11, we can do something good for the world. That's interesting. And that brings up what we would do when we've reached the goal. Yeah. I actually appreciate the gentle prod in your question, which is to talk a bit about actually the cognitive and behavioral studies that are out there. It's been on my mind um, to yeah, investigate those more. So. Okay, great. One thing uh, I noticed, I think you've only had men on uh, to interview so far. If you're interested, I've got a couple of female colleagues and economist friends who I can introduce you to, uh, who you might, uh, might want to have on to some future episodes. Please. Yes. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, well, uh, great to meet you both. Thank you.